Hello and welcome to COM 2110. This is week five and this lecture is about sports spectators and how they interact with media. Okay. And the first thing that we're going to talk about is team identification, the sports spectator identification scale and trying to measure how much of a fan people actually are. We're going to see if we can measure how much of a fan you are first. Okay. Then we're going to follow up with uh, a little bit of a uh, uh, summary of the research article that you had to complete on Canvas. Then we will talk about two of the theories that the book discusses briefly when it relates to fandom and media audiences, the hypodermic needle theory and uses and gratifications theory, because I want to sort of clarify those concepts the way that they're described in the book and sort of extend that conversation. But before we do that, I'd like to get this tune from the Zombie Nation game from the Commodore 64 stuck in your head, because I'm sure all of you have heard it, uh, whether or not you've actually played the game. We start talking about fans as the object of study, let's talk about you as the object of study. If you want to click on this QR code on the screen if you're watching, this will take you to a survey where you can actually fill out the Sports Spectator Identification Scale, which is what we're about to talk about. Uh, and it's one of many ways that researchers have tried to figure out how to measure sports fandom, or sort of how much of a fan we are of a certain thing. Because that's kind of an important thing to figure out in sports communication or sports marketing or sports consumer research. Um, there are several different ways to do it. Uh, emotional attachment is one. The book talks specifically about affect theory briefly. But far and away, the most prolific version or most prolific way of measuring fandom is this sports spectator identification scale. And I will use that interchangeably probably with team identification. Basically, how much do you identify as a fan of a team or could be a player too? Uh, we saw with the Ray Rice moral reasoning article that was identification with the player. In my study, the one about uh, Justin Rohrwasser, that's identification with the Patriots, team identification with the Patriots. And I used this scale right here to measure how much of a Patriots fan basically people were. Okay, so take that survey and then add up all the numbers together to see how much of a fan you are, okay? And if we're looking at the questions here, okay, how important is it for you that the team listed above wins? Uh, how strongly do you see yourself as a fan of the team that you wrote down? Uh, how strongly do your friends see you as a fan of the team listed? 
uh, during the season. How closely do you follow the team listed above via any of the following uh, newspaper, television, radio, yada, yada, yada. Questions like that. Okay. How much do you wear the team's logo or insignia? Things like that. Uh, if you score higher on the scale, that means you're more of a fan, less on the scale. According to this, less of a fan. Okay. And so in the book, according to uh, someone named Simons in The Secret Life of Sports Fans, if you score less than 18, that means you're not really much of a fan. Okay. So if you add up all of those questions together, the numbers there, if you only get 18 or so, kind of a fair weather fan. If you come in over 35, you're seriously invested. Um, another way of talking about that would be calling it moderate identification. Um, 40 to 56, that's where we are categorized into high identification. And then anything above that, your extreme identification, hardcore fans. Uh, when I've given this survey out to um, your fellow classmates in the previous semesters, I usually get like three or four per class that get in that extreme identification, like a hardcore fan, the biggest fan there could be, at least according to the way that this scale is devised. So what do you think about that? Based on your score, if you took that, is this an accurate representation uh, as your experience as a fan? Maybe. It could be a very specific version of a fan, though. Uh, there's some scholars, uh, specifically one at Syracuse, that thinks that this type of scale measures a really specific or typical or traditional type of fandom. And they argue for something called performative sports fandom. Okay? And that's where people sort of negotiate their fan identity depending on the environment or situation. And we do this all the time. Okay, do you act the same in class as you do on a Friday night with your friends? Probably not. Or how about at dinner with your grandparents? Also probably not. Do you act the same way watching sports around your parents as you do with your friends? Some of you maybe, some of you maybe not. So it all depends on the context and the situation and the environment. And we might do the same thing with being a sports fan. I mean, if you're at a game... You're probably acting much differently than you are if you have to um, go to a wedding and you're just streaming, you know, the game under a table or something like that, right? You're acting differently in those two different situations. So that's something to keep in mind when we're using basically numbers to try to measure something like fandom, because it's sort of a complicated thing. Speaking of being complicated, fans have multiple different types of identities that sort of interact with one another. We all have different identities that interact with one another at any given time. And so, as an example, let's actually use the research article that you had to read for this week, okay? So, if you remember back to last week, we talked about Ray Rice and moral reasoning. And what that came down to was basically, the more someone identified as a fan of Ray Rice, the more they were likely to downplay or rationalize you know, him assaulting his girlfriend, right? That kind of makes sense. The closer you are to somebody, the more likely you are to defend them. That is pretty straightforward. So what if you throw in another identity to that, though? That's what is going on with the research article for this week, okay? We're looking at team identification, how much someone identifies with the Patriots, but also their political identification. Because in this case, the athlete in question, Justin Rohrwasser, he didn't do something 
immoral or, um, you know, anything violent. He has a tattoo of the three percenters, which is a far right militia group. They're one of the militia groups that actually was at the Capitol on January 6th. And he has a couple of other instances. If you saw the article, um, that sort of associate him with far right, uh, groups. Right. And so what would happen in that case with people who are say more liberal compared to more conservative when it comes to actually downplaying or rationalizing those associations as opposed to some sort of immoral act. Okay. Well, here's one of the graphs from that study. It's the moral rationalization graph. And just to give you uh, a refresher on that, the questions that were asked to these people about moral rationalization were things like, how much do you agree or disagree with the following statements? Justin Rohrwasser's controversial political beliefs are not as bad as some of the other things that people do. Okay, fine. Uh, it is important to take into account that Justin Rohrwasser's political beliefs do not really do much harm. And finally, Justin Rohrwasser should not be at fault for making controversial political statements because the pressures of modern politics are so high. Okay, so rationalizing his sort of stances on politics. And if you're looking at this graph, the colored lines are each of the different levels of political identification that were asked to the survey responders. Okay, so you have liberal ideology in red, and you have moderate and green there, and then conservative is down at purple at the end, right? And so sort of a scale, a spectrum of American uh, political ideology from liberal to conservative. And then we also have, if you're looking at the bottom of the graph from left to right, there are um, the levels of team identification. So not much of a fan or low identification on the left, all the way to diehard fan, uh, extreme identification all the way on the right. Okay. So now let's take this graph all together. Going vertically, you have agreement with those moral reasoning uh moral rationalization ideas, right? So sort of downplaying and rationalizing the situation. So for people that aren't much of a fan, like the low identification, but they're a bleeding heart liberal, their political identification is much more salient or more at the forefront. You can see there's a big difference in how much they rationalize the situation, rationalize Justin Warwasser's political beliefs. So people that, for pe all of the people that aren't much of a fan, the more liberal they are, the less they're going to rationalize. The more conservative they are, the more they're going to rationalize. You can see a big difference there on the left side of the graph, which kind of makes sense given the politics of the particular player. But here's the interesting part. Look on the right side. For diehard fans, so the people who identify with the Patriots the most, what does it mean that all the colored lines overlap around like the 6.5-ish mark out of seven. It means that the most diehard fans across the political spectrum all rationalize or downplay his associations to the same extent. So for the red line, they're the bleeding heart liberals, but their patriots identification becomes more salient or more prominent, which means that they downplay or rationalize his far-right associations just as much as the most staunch conservatives that are also diehard patriots fans. So in that case, we have a situation where whichever identity is more salient will inform moral reasoning. So when someone's Patriots fandom is at the forefront or most salient, that's the people that are probably on the right side, right? So they're the ones that are 
uh, more likely to rationalize or downplay his controversial political associations. The ones on the left, where there's a bigger difference, they're not that much of a Patriots fan, so their political identification is becoming more salient in those instances. And so that's sort of the big takeaway from that study, is that whichever identity is more salient at the time is going to inform moral reasoning to try to make that identity feel better about the situation. And that's just an example of how sports fans can be very complicated. Now, all of that's to say that it's just an example of the complicated nature of fandom, and if you want to work in sports in any capacity, this quote from the book really sums it up. In order to communicate effectively with these audiences, leagues, teams, and other sports entities have to understand the complex nature of fandom. Because without fans, professional sports don't actually exist. Think about it for a second. Without fans, why would there be professional sports? Without fans, the most organized a sport probably gets is golf because you have country club memberships and then you have, you know, a tournament of all of the members at the end of the season, something like that. But if there's no one that wants to watch sports, why would there be a professional league at all? The whole point of professional leagues is basically to have fans watch so they can make money. How are they going to make money if they don't have fans? And so in trying to have a conversation about how to communicate with fans, the book says there are two contrasting theories that are fundamental or foundational to understanding how teams should communicate with fans. Okay, so these two competing theories are Magic Bullet Theory, which according to Magic Bullet Theory says, quote, Sports fans who watch the NFL and various programming related to American football become more enthusiastic because the consumption of football begets greater appreciation of the game. Okay, so basically, because you watch football, you become more of a fan because football makes you more of a fan. Okay, the other theory is uses and gratifications theory, which says that as it relates to fandom, it does not assume that the fan becomes a fan because they are overwhelmed or persuaded by what they view, but what is available to be viewed, like the proliferation of platforms like ESPN, ESPN2, ESPN+, NBA, NFL Network, all of those, are the result of fans' need for gratification. Okay, so it's more of the fans sort of influencing the media compared to Magic Bullet Theory, which is the media influencing the fan. However, I think these applications are a little bit vague, um, kind of weird. Uh, let's take each of these theories individually and sort of circle back to how they relate to sports fans, and maybe we can try to update these sentences um, after I give you a little bit of background info on media effects theory. So one key piece of the magic bullet theory, um, you can also call it the hypodermic needle theory if you'd like, is that audiences are considered passive. That you put some kind of media on, like The Office or something like that, and the show's influence is just sort of a wave that comes over you, affecting us all in the same way. And one reason for this idea is that at the time, which is at the late 1800s up to about 1950-ish, is the lack of audience research and people focusing on more of what the content was or what media was out there, okay? And there were some historical things that happened that help explain why people started thinking that 
media had this giant influence on people, and oftentimes it had to do with wars. So you can trace some of this back to the yellow journalism in the 1800s. Uh, and usually when we talk about yellow journalism, we talk about two newspapers in New York that really hated each other and would sort of report on each other uh, that were almost completely made up stories. Um, one of the papers was Joseph Pulitzer's paper. The other paper was the New York Journal, which was William Randolph Hearst's paper. He's the guy that uh, Citizen Kane is actually based on. We'll talk about Orson Welles, the director of Citizen Kane, uh, coming up in a few slides. So Hearst is actually credited with helping garner support for the Spanish-American War. So at the time, Teddy Roosevelt was none too happy with the Spanish and wanted to go to war with Spain. And so we had a ship called the USS Maine that actually blew up. And we didn't know what happened. It was probably an internal explosion. But we weren't exactly, exactly sure that the Spanish didn't blow up the ship. So Teddy Roosevelt went to Hearst and said, hey, why don't you tell people that the Spanish blew this up? And so he did that, as you can see on the screen. There's an article right there called Spanish Blow Up USS Maine. So he put out reports that the Spanish blew up the ship and it helped garner support for going to war with Spain. And this might be a bit exaggerated, but readers at the time didn't really have alternative news. Uh, there's a historian named Michael Robertson that actually uh, has an interesting quote that feels relevant to today. He says, newspaper readers and reporters of the 1890s were much less concerned with distinguishing among fact-based reporting, opinion, and literature. So apparently nothing really changes. Anyway, that was one instance of newspapers sort of affecting people or making them want to go to war. A bit later, we get into World War I, and the government wants to get people excited to go to World War I, right? So uh, Woodrow Wilson started this committee with a journalist named George Creel, who was named the head of the committee. And their goal was to spread posters and paintings and the like with messages of patriotism and fear and interest in the war efforts. And if you think about it, that's a form of propaganda. Here's where you get something like Uncle Sam, posters like that. So, again, this worked, and again, researchers and general public were concerned that, you know, if the U.S. could persuade people to want to go to war just based on posters or newspapers, what would happen if you throw in movies or radio? And it just so happens that the next thing people worried about was movies. So people started thinking about the effects of movies around the 1920s, because that's when people really, really started to go to the movies. And when I say really when saw the movies, I mean they really went. Like, this was one of the few things that you could go out and do. When Gone with the Wind came out, which is still, if you adjust for inflation, the biggest box office of all time, it premiered in Atlanta, and they actually declared a state holiday in Georgia. That's how big of a deal it was. So, a lot of people went to the movies. And around the same time, we had social science research start to develop. And so some social scientists were worried about people mimicking the behavior of people in movies. So wearing clothes like the people that they saw on, on film or um, sort of acting like them, especially for kids. that They called it the Pied Piper effect. So really being susceptible to what they see on, on film. And not to mention, it was a very brand new technology at the time. Been out for a few years, but uh, being able to see it on a big screen was a pretty new thing. So I have this video for you. Watch this video. And just a warning, you need to be careful because when people first saw this for the first time in the theater, they panicked and ran out of the theater. OK, 
Okay, so think about why that happened. Okay, you still seated? Alright, good. It's just a train coming into a station, right? Seems pretty mundane. But imagine never seeing a motion picture before, and the first thing you see moving on a giant screen in front of you is a train coming right towards you. So keep in mind, people are amazed and awestruck by new things and new technology, and we still do that to this day. And if you watch those videos of the MIT robots dancing in the labs, those freak me out. Or I can't tell you how many emails I've gotten from professors worried about students using ChatGPT to write all of their essays for the semester. Like, new technology just sort of amazes us and almost scares us in a way. So luckily around this time, we also had people actually doing research or starting to get into research. So in 1929, the Payne Found Foundation, they decided that they needed to actually see how movies affected people. So they conducted the first systematic attempt to discover media impact scientifically. And these are still things that researchers are trying to use to study different types of media today. So the first thing they did was content analysis. Okay, that's at the simplest level. You're watching what's on the screen and sort of tallying up all the different times you see something. So in this case, they were trying to come up with the different genres or themes that they saw in movies. And they found that 75% of the movies included elements of crime, love, and sex. I bet that's around the same percentage that it is today. Another thing they were measuring was emotional impact. And the way that you do that, you still do this today, is using physiological measures. So taking people's heart rates, measuring the amount of sweat on people's skin, that sort of thing. Um, and when they did this, they actually did find differences by age. So think of scary movies. When you're a little kid, they're probably more scary than they are to you when you're an adult. Uh, I know for my brother, even the movie Home Alone, he would have to run out of the room when Marv would step on the nail coming up out of the basement. He was so scared of that as a kid. And today, it's his favorite movie. He loves it. The third thing they did was looking at observations and behavior by doing interviews and just simply watching people, observing people. Uh, and they found that some people did mimic the behaviors of their favorite characters, but it was often stuff like just wearing similar outfits as them, or maybe sort of like talking like them or quoting them. So like pretty harmless stuff, okay? So now we have a situation where movies, newspapers, posters, and flyers all affect people to some degrees. And it was during this time that people really established this idea of the legacy of fear, okay? And so the legacy of fear is this idea of widespread beliefs that the media were dangerous and that the effects of media messages might pervert and upset the proper social order. But again, if you think about the results from that last one about movies, we already saw that there were differences by age and that some of the things that people were affected by, like just kind of, you know, quoting a movie, we do that all the time. So it's not really that big of a deal. However, only researchers were starting to figure this out. The general public still had this idea of legacy fear. They were quite worried about the impact of media. And it didn't help that we had one last event that really convinced people of this effect of mass media, and that's the War of the Worlds broadcast. And this guy, Orson Welles, who, again, was the guy who did Citizen Kane, which is what 
William Randall First Life is based on, he's the one that created War of the Worlds as well. So let's take a listen to this and think about why people would have been freaked out about this. The Columbia Broadcasting System and its affiliated stations present Orson Welles and the Mercury Theater on the Air in The War of the Worlds by H.G. Wells. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, the director of the Mercury Theater and star of these broadcasts, Orson Welles. We know now that in the early years of the 20th century, this world was being watched closely by intelligences greater than man's, and yet as mortal as his own. For the next 24 hours, not much change in temperature. A slight atmospheric disturbance of undetermined origin is reported over Nova Scotia causing a low-pressure area to move down rather rapidly over the northeastern states, bringing a forecast of rain accompanied by winds of light gale force. Maximum temperature, 66, minimum 48. This weather report comes to you from the Government Weather Bureau. We take you now to the Meridian Room in the Hotel Park Plaza in downtown New York, where you will be entertained by the music of Raymond Raquello and his orchestra. Ladies and gentlemen, from the Meridian Room in the Park Plaza Hotel in New York City, we bring you the music of Raymond Raquello and his orchestra. With a touch of the Spanish, Raymond Raquello leads off with La Campancita. Ladies and gentlemen, we interrupt our program of dance music to bring you a special bulletin from the Intercontinental Radio News. At 20 minutes before 8 central time, Professor Farrell of the Mount Jennings Observatory, Chicago, Illinois, reports observing several explosions of incandescent gas occurring at regular intervals on the planet Mars. The spectroscope indicates the gas to be hydrogen and moving toward the Earth with enormous velocity. Professor Pearson of the observatory at Princeton confirms Farrell's observation and describes the phenomenon as, quote, like a jet of blue flame shot from a gun, unquote. We now return you to the music of Ramon Raquello playing for you in the Meridian Room of the Park Plaza Hotel situated in downtown New York. You can see how someone that misses the very beginning of it might think it's a real breaking news into an orchestrated music thing, right? Supposedly, one million of the six million people thought it was real. It didn't help that in a town in Michigan, they actually had an unrelated power outage adding to that believability. I kind of feel bad for those people. So after this happened, people at Princeton decided they wanted to take a look at this event and analyze newspaper coverage and do interviews and surveys with people to try to understand why people believed it or exactly who believed it. And so they did find that there were four types of people that were more likely to believe that this was a real thing. They were people with lower critical thinking ability, lower self-confidence, lower emotional security. So I guess the idea would be 
you know, those types of people might be more susceptible to manipulation and then also strongly religious people. And so they found that there were differences. And really, if we take all this together, it seems generally that the audience were just audiences were just kind of more gullible at the time, you know, even with the train coming at them. Basically, they were just unfamiliar with the new technologies and codes of audiovisual media. So it was more of like a misunderstanding of what was going on. However, that is still kind of an issue. Um, not everyone has media literacy even today. In fact, three of the predictors um, of belief in conspiracy theories are basically three of the four who were more likely to believe in the War of the Worlds, education level, religious people, and self-confidence. So media literacy is still an issue today. But the takeaway here is that even though people did freak out, it was individual characteristics that predict which people freaked out. And so people are affected by media just sort of differently, but it's not this legacy of fear or like this hypodermic needle thing or magic bullet thing. It's not really something nefarious or evil. You know, we sometimes ask tall people if they played basketball specifically because we've seen basketball games or a lot of us have only watched them on TV. And we know that being tall in basketball is kind of an advantage and more of an advantage than it might be in some other sports. And some of us even think that it might be a waste if a tall person didn't play basketball. You know, if we didn't have basketball games to watch, no one would ask a tall person if they played basketball. And other things like our ideas of being a man or a good teammate, something like that, you know, being tough and playing through the pain, those are traditionally masculine values or ideals. And when we watch sports, we want our teams to win no matter what. So we want our players to play no matter what, right? Or when a site like Barstool Sports has, say, 10 articles about men's sports compared to every one article about women, and it's not necessarily an article about women's sports, that could get off the impression of what's more important or that what should be covered differs by gender, right? But remember, only some people are more likely to be affected by others. And this doesn't account for the fact that every single person chooses what they consume in regards to media and sports media. So now let's bring this back to the book. And we again have the application of Magic Bullet Theory from the reading, which says sports fans who watch the NFL and various programming related to American football become more enthusiastic because the consumption of football begets greater appreciation for the game. So I think that's probably right. You know, think of the movies wearing the clothes or talking like the characters or quoting the characters. Um... Pretty much everyone gets excited about a suspenseful game. So my definition, the first half of that's probably right. So for me, sports fans who watch sports all react in similar ways. We cheer, we boo, we show fandom, and we mimic players' moves. So think of the movies again, right? You know, if we play a sport that we also like to watch, uh, we might try to mimic some of the moves that we see the athletes make on the TV. That right there would uh, sort of prove the magic bullet theory to some extent that we are influenced by the media that we watch. However, there's also another aspect that is more of why someone might be worried about media, and that's that 
sports fans may adhere to more traditional beliefs that perpetuate stereotypes or inequality or things like that because sports may tend to promote those ideas unintentionally. Okay, so that's more of the thing I want to focus on is sort of unintentional perpetuation of stereotypes because that's probably something that sports do. However, again, we pick and choose what we want to watch, right? Something like Barstool Sports, not everyone has to go to Barstool Sports to get information about sports. It's specific people that are choosing to go there that might already adhere to more traditional beliefs instead of the other way around. And so that sort of leads us to our other theory from the book. The second theory that the book discussed is uses and gratifications. And uses and gratifications might be the most straightforward theory that we cover this whole semester. It relies on the idea that people seek out certain kinds of media content to satisfy a variety of very personal needs. In other words, it says that people use certain kinds of media in order to feel some sort of gratification. Uses and gratifications. And instead of being worried about the direct effects of mass media on audience members or viewers, like the hypodermic needle magic bullet theory, the concern of uses and grats research is the how and why people use media. So if you remember to how the book described it, it was that it's not that we're affected by media, it's that because we have such a high demand for sports content, that's why there's so many different platforms of sports content. ESPN2, ESPN+, Plus, NFL Network, NBA Network, all those are because of sports fans' desires and demand for that content. And there are some assumptions about uses and gratifications that we should keep in mind moving forward. So the first is that uses and grats always assumes that the viewer actively chooses the program or other media content to gratify individual needs. It's just that some people are being more purposeful in their choice than others. So an example might be you might purposely choose to go to ESPN.com to get information about current sports news. Information seeking is pretty purposeful. On the other hand, even just throwing on ESPN on the TV or throwing on Netflix because you're bored, that's an active choice. It's just not as an assertive a choice. You know, you're bored, so you're trying to alleviate some of that boredom by finding something to watch. Maybe your thought process was, in that case, I guess I could watch Netflix because I'm bored, right? That sort of thing. So that's one of the assumptions. Another is that people choose to consume media content for a bunch of different reasons. And this can apply to the first assumption where people choose, you know, to watch the news quite purposefully to get information. However, some people watch the news because they always watch the six o'clock news while they eat dinner. Or nowadays you might throw Netflix on in the background while you do homework. You know, maybe that's turned into a habit and it's a less active choice now. Right. But other people are watching Netflix because that's all they want to do. They just want to focus on Netflix. Two very different reasons for watching. The third assumption is another example for why people have different reasons to watch things. So individual differences among audience members can cause each person to seek out different messages, to use those messages differently and respond to them uniquely. 
a person's social or psychological makeup is as responsible for media uses and effects as are the media messages themselves. Think back to the types of people that were more affected by the War of the Worlds broadcast, right? So, you know, you might feel like you want to hear a song right now because it pumps you up for a workout, all right? Another person might want to hear that exact same song because they just got broken up with and they think it's going to be a good breakup song that'll help them release some of that, you know, angst or that pent-up frustration from the breakup. You know, in that example, you're both using the same music, but for very different reasons and both receiving different gratifications from the music. And then lastly, media competes with other forms of media and non-media for selection attention, and used to gratify our needs and wants. So imagine you're that newly single person that I just mentioned. Maybe instead of using music to feel better about yourself, you decide to sit on Tinder and swipe right. Or maybe you play Call of Duty because you want to get a bunch of headshots or something. Or maybe you choose a non-media option, like deciding to get drunk with your best friends, or um, you know, just hang out with your friends and watch a movie, something like that. All of those things are choices that you make, and in each case, they may or may not make you feel better as a result. So if you put this all together, you get a big, thorough definition like this, which we are about to go over, that sums up every part of the theory. The social and psychological origins of needs, which generate expectations of the mass media or other sources, which lead to differential patterns of media exposure or engagement with other activities, resulting in need gratifications and other consequences, perhaps mostly unintended ones. So let's go back to watching Netflix because you're bored as an example and apply each of these seven steps. So the social and psychological origins are your individual and mental social state. So you're probably super bored one day since you can't go anywhere and, you know, you have cabin fever and you're bored, right? So you're bored and you want to not be bored anymore. That's your need, which generates, number three, expectations, which are expectations of, number four, the mass media and other sources. So for these, you think to yourself, what can I do to not be bored? Well, in the past, you know that turning on Netflix can pass some time, so... That's what you decide to do. That leads to number five, differential patterns of media exposure or engagement in other activities. In other words, you end up watching Netflix and chilling on the couch. And this might result in number six, need gratifications, which just means that what you were hoping to have achieved was achieved. In this case, you found something on Netflix that you were interested in and it alleviated your boredom. Or it could be number seven, other consequences, perhaps mostly unintended ones. You know, maybe you ended up binging a show and missed an entire homework assignment unintentionally. Or maybe, if you remember a few years ago, everyone got super into Tiger King when they were at home bored watching Netflix, and maybe now you want to work for PETA because you watched that whole series and it really affected you. Those are the sorts of side effects from this whole process above just because you felt bored. So now that you have the original definition of uses and gratifications, let's read again how the book applies this to sports. So it says, Uses and gratifications theory as it relates to fandom does not assume that fans become fans because they're overwhelmed or persuaded by what they view, but what is available to be viewed and the proliferation of platforms like ESPN, ESPN2, ESPN+, NFL, NBA, all of those are the result of fans' need for gratification. 
So basically, sports fans want to watch sports, and they know that having different channels to watch sports on will alleviate that gratification to watch sports. So, okay, that's fine. This suggests that the only interaction between fans and sports media is that fans have the need for sports, which gratify various urges, and that's why there's so many channels dedicated to sports. And yes, that's the case, sure, but it's a little bit more than that. And so to me, based on the assumptions and definitions of use and gratifications theory as it relates to fandom, it assumes fans become fans based on personal characteristics, both internally and externally. Think about the Rainey article from your daily case, which talks about emotional aspects, which are internal, of wanting to watch sports, as well as things like family or community. Those are more external. So fans will choose to watch sports for a variety of reasons. Use and gratifications, right? And sports media has proliferated because there is so much demand. Because without fans, there's no sports on television. But also, that last part of the use and gratifications definition needs to be considered, and the book doesn't do that. So there are gratifications that we meet by watching sports, but there can be other consequences, perhaps mostly unintended ones, as well. So in reality, I think it's probably both of these theories mixed together a little bit. So remember that last part of the use and gratifications definition, other consequences, perhaps mostly unintended ones. That's important. So there's a potential for some unintended consequences, right? You know, someone who's a Browns fan doesn't want to watch the Browns because they want to root for a player that has dozens of sexual misconduct cases brought against them. Or a Ravens fan doesn't want to watch the Ravens to root for a player that punched his girlfriend in an elevator. And people don't root for Kyrie Irving because he has a lot of evidence against him suggesting he's an anti-Semite. We watch our favorite teams despite these things because we love our favorite teams and favorite players. And people are different and like different teams and players. But think about the studies we've just covered in the last couple of weeks. By being a diehard fan of these teams, people end up being just a bit more lenient when it comes to their off-the-field, potentially controversial things. Now, that's an extreme example, right? However, there's also studies that show that heavy viewers of sports and players of video games, specifically violent video games, they actually outscore lighter users on beliefs about masculinity. So things like where men are supposed to be emotionally detached or dominant or tough or avoid being feminine, those types of things. So very traditional beliefs, right? But again, we're all individuals and we're not watching sports because of these things. We watch because we want to, because it's entertainment, another one of your daily cases. And we want to watch sports because we like sports, sports, which leads to our idea of reciprocity, which is my overall belief of how we interact with media and sports media, okay? Who we are as people determines what media we decide to watch or consume. And that media influences us to some degree. And that influence may inform our future decisions. So it's more of like a cycle. We pick media, media influences us, we pick more media partly because of that influence. A Republican is more likely to watch Fox News because Fox News is likely to slant things in a conservative way than when they do, the Republicans' viewpoints are probably reinforced, and then they'll want to watch more Fox News in the future. Make sense? 
about for sports. If a person loves soccer, they're more likely to watch soccer matches, and watching soccer matches can increase a person's knowledge or involvement or identification in soccer, which increases fandom, so watching soccer adds to fandom, which leads to additional viewing of soccer matches. Again, sort of a cycle of this. So, ultimately, both of the theories in the book have some degree of being accurate, but I think it's a much more complicated and more cyclical thing going on. So now that we've talked about how sports fans interact with, are influenced by, and influence sports media, next up we will talk about communicating with the public, or more from the sort of sports media side of things, and a couple of theories related to that. Um, also, make sure you're thinking about your reflection paper coming up in a couple of weeks. And then finally, read the chapter on communicating with the public, which will be helpful for the lectures coming up. Thanks.